Hey there, go-getters, dream chasers, and unstoppable creators. We're here to talk about something that could be a real game changer for you. It's called Social Capital, a totally free advanced networking course tailored to help you master the art of building robust, meaningful relationships that not only empower you, but also the people around you. Imagine walking into any room, any situation, and feeling absolutely confident because you've mastered the ability to create valuable connections. Social capital takes you there. And guess what? It's not just about building a LinkedIn network or making small talk at cocktail parties. This course is here to change your networking game forever by teaching you the nuanced strategies and tactics to build deep, meaningful relationships that will propel you, your career, and your life to extraordinary heights. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a creative artist, or a seasoned executive looking to expand your horizons, Social Capital is the ticket to opening doors you never knew existed. Get started with Social Capital for free today and let the journey of forging powerful relationships begin. Go to theartofcharm.com slash SC and start networking like a pro. After all, your network is your net worth. That's theartofcharm.com slash SC. Social capital, where meaningful relationships begin. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research in the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right, let's kick off today's show. Today, we've prepared another compilation episode for you. In this one, we've collected our favorite high-impact techniques when it comes to networking to become a super connector. Listen to what Adam Grant, Keith Ferrazzi, Johnny Michael, and I share about powerful networking in past episodes. Adam Grant joins us to break down the five-minute favor to amplify your social capital and why networking is all about giving versus taking. We also unpack the secret to the double opt-in to make your networking efforts more impactful. Our super connector follow-up formula after meeting someone you want in your network. And Keith Ferrazzi explains the best way to connect with an acquaintance and turn them into a trusted advisor. Now this first clip we want to share with you has Adam Grant explain two incredibly useful concepts. The five-minute favor, a new way to think about giving and taking when networking. Now, Adam's been on the show many times, and we're always happy to have him. He's a professor at Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania, where he received his tenure at the age of 28. He's the author of Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success, a phenomenal book that we recommend to all of our X-Factor Accelerator participants. So let's hand it over to Adam. Let's see. When I think about this, I always think of Adam Rifkin. Adam's uh, one of the stars in my first book, Give and Take. Mm -hmm. And Adam is, is one of the most generous givers I know. He's also a remarkably good networker. He was named Fortune's Best Networker some years ago when he had more connections to powerful people than anyone on LinkedIn, including the CEO himself. 
which is not bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when I asked Adam how he met these people, he said, well, it's really simple. I've just spent my whole career and most of my life doing five-minute favors. I thought this was such a simple and actionable idea that, you know, you don't have to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi to do something for someone else. That you can just micro-loan your time, your energy, your skills, or your connections to other people for a few minutes a day. And I think that's one of the most powerful ways to build relationships. So, you know, Adam's advice is you do a few five-minute favors every day. And over time, you feel more connected. You're able to add more value to other people's lives. And you end up building new relationships in the process. Uh, Many of those people then will go on to pay it forward because they feel a sense of gratitude. And they want to try to model the, the way of being in the world that you've just introduced to them or maybe reinforced for them. And I think the I might just edit a little bit and say, my read of some of the evidence is we might be better off instead of doing you know a few five-minute favors every day, picking one day a week as our five-minute favor day or as our generosity day. There are experiments uh, with people doing random acts of kindness by Sonia Lubomirsky and her colleagues, and then people helping each other randomly in the workplace by Ryan Duffy and his colleagues, where they essentially show the same thing, that people who do one random act of kindness or one act of helping a day, it has no effect whatsoever on their mood or their energy. It might help other people, but it's useless for you. (laughs) And in contrast, when people pick Thursday and say, I'm going to stack up all five of those acts of generosity in one day, they get a, a significant and sustainable increase in their energy and happiness. And that, that seems to be because they're able to feel like they made a difference that day as opposed to it being a drop in the bucket. It may also be because you know they're more focused and that's less of a distraction in that giving day. But I think that that's something we could all do to continue deepening and broadening our networks. I love that because for me, Thursdays, I'm dragging already. So <laughs> I could use that little, that little burst of energy. Generosity no, I'm so day. glad. Try it at your own risk. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to talk about Give and Take. It's seriously one of Johnny and my favorite books of all time. We recommend it to all of our bootcamp participants. And really, it's changed the way that I view giving. I used to consider myself a matcher and definitely felt that I was always sort of guarding my time and and constantly calculating how much I got out of what I was getting and of course can become unnerving. And then to see that science behind, you know what, just the five minute favor, doing it consistently as a habit and giving without having to trace and track everyone's return on that giving that you're doing. I found that my anxiety waned tremendously and and I certainly felt like I was making a greater impact than trying to keep score. But many of us are struggling in, in breaking out of that matcher mindset, especially when we see those takers around us having their careers advanced and, and moving faster than we are. Yeah. Uh, this is the story of so many people's lives. Well, AJ, I'm, I'm honored that it's it's been relevant to your life. I'm glad it, it sounds like it hasn't totally ruined it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it has not. I can, I can add that as a testimonial. It has not ruined my life. Good. That's encouraging. That's my primary goal. First, do no harm. <laughs> I think that there are lots of ways that people end up getting ahead when they're selfish. My read of the evidence is that happens, especially in workplaces where individual performance metrics dominate. And the way that you succeed is by being better than everyone else. Personally, I prefer not to work in an organization that (laughs) operates that way, right? Right. And if you join a culture where people's contributions to others are valued as much as their individual achievements, 
then you see really quickly that takers tend to fall and givers rise very quickly. I, one of the things I wish I'd covered in, in Give and Take was a meta-analysis, a giant study of studies with over 50,000 employees across industries. And the finding is that how much time you spend helping other people and trying to, to contribute to the organization above and beyond your individual job description, that has as much impact on your performance reviews and your promotion rate as how well you do your actual tasks themselves. And so what that says to me is actually in most workplaces, leaders and managers don't just want the individual superstar. They want the person who makes the team better, who goes above and beyond for the organization to try to advance the mission. And I think the, the real problem is there are a lot of takers who are good fakers and who end up you know, kind of kissing up and kicking down. When that happens, I think you have a, a few choices. And I'm not going to say you shouldn't be a matcher when dealing with takers, right? If somebody has a history or a reputation of selfish behavior, you probably do want to be much more, I would say, you basically want to follow the law of reciprocity and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to help you if you pay it back or pay it forward. But I think there are actually ways to reform takers, which might be fun to talk about. I'm curious, as, yeah. as you guys have dealt with selfish people, how have you thought about getting them to, to maybe think about being more generous? When we're doing it in class, and inevitably, there's always a few people who are afraid of being taken advantage of. Oh, if I'm a giver, then I'm going to get taken advantage of. And that usually stems from in the past where they felt they had been taken advantage of. And for me, yeah. if, you, if you ask that question then there are two things going on. A, you have not learned how to build boundaries. So those boundaries, they're murky. And so you do get taken advantage of because you're unable to say no because you don't know yeah. when to say no. And number two is the value that you hold for yourself. And what I had seen, and, and I love your book so much, is that without cultivating a feeling of value for yourself, then of course you're going to feel as if everyone's there to take from you because you haven't built up the value that you would want to protect with boundaries. And that takes time. And I've, we've put together in our classes ways of building that value for yourself, which is acting in a manner that is consistent with the values that you hold for yourself. And every day that you're able to do that, the value that you have for yourself builds and you continue to fill that in while you're being consistent and engaging in those values. And two, do you get to a point where you now hold that value for yourself and you certainly wouldn't want to have that taken advantage of. So now you're comfortable in building those boundaries because you've seen the work that you've put in to get to that position. Yeah. And I would add to that, you know, the way to reform takers happens through norms and the group has to participate in the norm for the taker to stand out for the wrong reasons. The reason you're seeing takers get ahead is because no norms have been set. So they've been allowed to set the norm or set the frame for behavior. So for example, if you have a taker in your midst, who's constantly taking credit and just blasting to management how much they've added to the project. And everyone else in the, the project feels like, well, wait a second, I had a contribution. What's going on here? The way to reframe that is to allow the taker to have credit, but then talk about how them taking that action benefited everyone else on the team and made them more productive. And when you set that norm enough with multiple examples where you're never just only spotlighting the person who had 
the credit, you're spotlighting all of the impact that that credit had. So it's spread around the team. Then you are working to create a norm where the taker isn't setting the frame and the taker isn't taking advantage of the fact that everyone else is just being a little humble and unwilling to speak up. And I find time and time again, especially early on in our career, we're not comfortable setting norms. We're not comfortable with setting those boundaries. So the takers quickly advance. And then as you get to the upper levels of your career, you realize that that flips and the takers can't actually demonstrate their value in a meaningful way. It just looks like they're stealing credit. So the best leaders are the ones who know how to give others credit. They're not the ones who are just blasting from the rooftops their credit. But a lot of times early in our career, we see the taker and we let them set the frame and we back off. And that's really the worst thing you can do because it's just allowing the taker to continue to take advantage of people and highlight themselves first. That really resonates. I think it's something that we, we often catch when it's too late and the norms have already been set to be much more competitive or cutthroat. And that's gotten me wondering, well, what, what can we do to, to hit the reset button? And probably the, the best example I've seen of this is in a financial services company a few years back, this woman named Kathy got a big promotion. And she was told that she was going to co-lead a new team with a guy named Colin. And four different people came up to Kathy and said, do not trust this guy, Colin. He's going to stab you in the back. He's going to steal credit for your ideas. Huge taker. Watch out. And Kathy has this opportunity when she sits down with him to figure out, okay, what is our working relationship going to be like? And what kind of culture are we going to build in our team? And she does something that I think very few of us have had the courage to do, but probably a lot more of us could do. She says, hey, Colin, you know, I understand we're going to be leading this new team together. Just wanted to let you know, this is what I've heard about you. And she shares all the reputational feedback. Colin's response is priceless. I don't know who you've been talking to, but clearly all these people are jealous of me. Thank you, Colin, for confirming your taker status. Yep. Right. But Kathy, Kathy's right on point. She's like, you know, Colin, honestly, I don't know you. We haven't worked together before. You know, I, I hope it's not true, though, because I don't work well with people who operate that way. And if that's who you are, you are not going to like working with me. And for the next year and a half, Colin changes his stripes. He shares credit. He volunteers for unpopular projects. He mentors junior people. And I think what Kathy did was she made his reputation visible to him. And then she invited him to earn a new one. And this, to me, is one of the most powerful things about working with takers. If you can figure out what their goals are, then their behavior is actually pretty predictable. And all you need to do is help them recognize that you know the power or success or wealth that they're trying to accumulate that might be jeopardized by being and being known as selfish. And so there's a better path. Now, you know, the sad part of the story is Colin changed teams a year and a half later, and he went right back to his old taker ways when Kathy wasn't holding him accountable anymore. But I think an example like that tracks with, with some of the evidence I've read that takers do not, in most cases, want to be outed as takers. And if you can let them know that their reputation is, you know, is steering in a more selfish direction, that's often the beginning of an incentive for them to try to change. Yeah. When their behavior isn't seen in a negative light by anyone openly, then they're going to continue acting that way because it tends to be rewarded. You know, we've had takers in our midst as a company. And one of the first things we did was start meetings off expressing gratitude for other people on the team. When you rob the taker of its their stage to 
crow about their own advancements and, and take up all of the credit for the rest of the team. And instead you focus communication on how has someone else helped you? How has someone else guided you? How did someone else kill it in their job? You take away that bully pulpit that a lot of takers use to their advantage. Unfortunately, what we find in our clients is they're not only givers, but they tend to be really humble. And what ends up happening is they don't have good ways to communicate their value to management. Mm. And unfortunately, management has way too many concerns to think clearly about all the different pieces that everyone is contributing to the team. And unless you are constantly presenting the value that you add, a lot of times, in especially in a bigger environment, you are going to get passed over for promotion when you are deserving of it. Because the fact that you're constantly doing the five-minute favors for others, not looking at all to take any of the credit, and in fact, downplaying when you are given compliments and, and saying, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal or it was no split off my back, that leads you to a position when it comes for performance review where management doesn't see you as being the person that builds the team up, does all the behind the scenes stuff that makes givers so fantastic. What is your advice for those of us in our career who are giving, but can't really explain or demonstrate our value when it matters or counts? Well, I think you have a few options. The first one is to recognize the value of having some matchers looking out for you. So I found over and over again, when I study people's motivations and values across industries and across cultures too, that very few people on the far extreme of giving or taking, most people by default, especially in a new professional interaction, they, they prefer this matching style of, you know, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And what's great about matchers then is they really believe in fairness and justice. It bothers them at their core if they see a taker getting away with selfish behavior. And they're also really upset if givers are going unrewarded for their generosity. And you know, for a while, I thought that we basically wanted only givers in, you know, in a workplace, because then if everyone's generous, we can build a culture with, with the most effective norms of helping and where people really put the team in the mission first, as opposed to just their individual self-interest. But I've had to rethink that because you, if you have no matchers in the system, it's much easier for takers to kind of sneak in and take advantage of the givers. I think you may want to build a protective shield of, of matchers around you. That would be my, my first tip. Yeah, so building allies. And I think a lot of us, in especially early on in our career, are looking for mentors. So we tend to look at people who are above us in the organizational structure. And we're like, okay, I want to be mentored by this person. I look up to this person. And we don't spend enough time building allies with our team members. And certainly identifying matchers and building alliances with them if you tend to fall on the giver side of the spectrum. It sounds like they're the ones who are going to be able to call the balls and strikes. And when that performance review comes around, actually give the truth to management when they're looking at who needs to move ahead and, and who maybe is taking too much of the credit. That tracks for me. And I think one thing that requires of a lot of givers is to stop judging matchers. I've had this reaction myself and I know I'm not alone. When, you know, when somebody, I actually, I had this happen with a colleague of mine where I asked him for some feedback on a project I was working on and he came back to me a couple days later with exceptionally thorough and helpful feedback and then said, here's the project I've been working on. You owe me feedback in three days. <laughs> and I was so offended by that because 
I, all of a sudden I felt like he didn't care about me. This was just a transaction. And, you know, now I, I had to repay my debt. It kind of undermined the relationship. I, I've changed my stance on that over time. I realized, you know what? The fact that this guy holds other people accountable for doing their share is exactly what givers need. And so, you know, instead of this, having this knee-jerk reaction of, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you so transactional? You know, it should be no strings attached. To be able to say, you know what, there's a time and a place for, for people to keep score. Maybe you don't want to be that person in every interaction or in most of your relationships. But, you know, knowing that there's, there's value in having those people around you, to me, that was a little bit eye-opening. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort Thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Yeah, I certainly agree that having matchers around you and involved in your career is a fantastic way if you skew towards a giver who is humble and can't really speak up your own value for them to help advocate on your behalf. Yeah, and that I guess that goes to the other the other point which is you don't have to just think about it as advocating for yourself. I've taught negotiations for years and the evidence is overwhelming that for women oftentimes there's a backlash when they're assertive in negotiations. And they're well aware of this. And so the, res- the natural response is often to be modest and humble and caring and communal and ask for less. And of course, that puts them at a huge disadvantage. And what the, the evidence says here is that if women are negotiating on behalf of others, if it's a colleague or a direct report or a mentee, uh, that, that gender backlash and gap vanishes. And I think this applies to people who are givers, who are men too. You know, one of the things I've taught to, you know, to some of the more, especially the, the more agreeable givers that I've, I've had in class is to say, you know what, if you find yourself walking in to negotiate a salary or a promotion, or even just to, to make sure that your boss is aware of your work and you shy away from, from asking or even just claiming the credit that's owed to you, then you need to think about who else you're representing. It may be that you're role modeling for people more junior who struggle with this. And it's an opportunity to go and try it out and report back to them so that they can learn from your example. It may be in a negotiation context that you're showing your boss, you know what? I negotiate as part of my job and I'm going to try to approach this negotiation, not only with generosity and concern for you, but also with high aspirations for my own goals, 
which is the way I'm going to represent you when I'm negotiating on your behalf as part of the company. I think that very often when, when people are extremely humble, they're thinking too narrowly about the credit or the ask as something selfish, when in fact, it may benefit other people or it may be something that actually in the future clearly benefits their employer. Once again, when it comes to a place where you're constantly in fear of being taken advantage of, you're always going to see that in other people, no matter what they're doing. And you're going to read things in that manner. Why I was mentioning earlier of it's so important to build your self-worth and reverse that. So you're looking for the, the good in everyone, but also at the same time, learning how people give value just because maybe you've gave a contact out, then you're looking for a contact that comes back. Well, perhaps the, a gift or a dinner or some time or like those, that reward, that value comes back in many different ways. Yeah. We were talking about this like love language. Exactly. And unfortunately, many of us in our communication style we expect to receive and return what we're giving to others. So as a giver, you could see yourself getting frustrated or feeling taken advantage of if you're looking at it as, well, I gave this person my time and now they're not giving me their time back immediately. Or I gave this person a referral and they're not giving me back a referral. But just because you gave someone that value doesn't mean that they're going to in turn give you that value back exactly the same way. A lot of people give value to others in different ways. And a five-minute favor for one person might actually be you know, an hour favor if they're not skilled or competent at what you're asking them to do. So I think you know, we put so much expectation on others. And I was talking to two of our uh, clients recently. At the end of the boot camp, we have dinner. And they were both consultants, different fields and actually different locations. One was based in the UK and one was based in New York. And they noticed this dynamic at work that if they went into the start of the project and told the client essentially, hey, in working with you, I want to do everything I can to get you promoted. So they set the frame at the start that I'm working to advocate for you, even though you work at a different company, and I'm going to make sure that your boss knows how well you worked with me, and I'm going to help advance your career. Well, lo and behold, they found out that at the end of their projects, they were getting high marks because they were interacting with matchers. So they were setting the norm at the very beginning, saying, I'm going to advocate on your behalf. And since most of us fall in the matcher category, sure enough, you're going to find enough people in their matcher and you're going to go, well, wait a second. If this person's giving me value by advocating for me, well, then I got to in turn do the same. I should be advocating for them. And they were able to advance in their career where that part of the performance review is so huge that the client speaks highly of you over delivering and the client is advocating on your behalf, not just your peers and your allies. And I think when you start to look at, okay, understanding your own behaviors, reading other people's behaviors, and ultimately starting to understand a little bit more of their core motivations, you can, as a giver, without having to be braggadocious, without having to be outside of your character, be a humble person and still get ahead. Yeah, I think this really speaks to a myth that I've seen over and over again on my research on, on givers and takers, which is, I think a lot of people see giving and, and taking as opposite ends of one spectrum. Mm -hmm. And they are at a, a fundamental level. 
when you go into an interaction, you know, asking what can you do for me is sort of the opposite of asking what can I do for you. But when you think about the motivations behind the two, they're actually independent. So there's a question of how much do you care about helping the other person you're interacting with? And then how much do you care about achieving your own goals? And when you measure those two separately, they're basically uncorrelated. So you can draw two by two. And, you know, the pure takers are high in concern for themselves and low in concern for others. And then you have some people who are, are low in concern for themselves and others. I, I've never known what to do with that. They're just, I guess, apathetic. They just, they don't care. <laughs> I guess that's depression. You have two kinds of givers. You have, you know, with both categories of givers, you have high concern for others. But some of them are, are low in concern for self. And those are the really selfless givers who end up being too humble, too nice, too self-sacrificing, and, and ultimately are more likely to burn out and get burned and underperform. And then on the flip side, you have the successful givers who say, look, you know, I'm not trying to be a matcher, right? I don't want something back from each, each person that I help. What I want to do is I want, I want to help as many people as I can, but be mindful of the personal cost of that and make sure that I don't overextend myself. And so I'll, you know, I'll help whenever it benefits other people a lot and, you know, make sure it doesn't cost me too much. And I think that that, for a lot of people that I've, I've had a chance to work with, that's been a useful reframe to say, look, you know, giving to others doesn't mean you're not ambitious. It doesn't mean you don't engage in self-care as well. And in fact, if, you know, if you don't prioritize your own goals and, and objectives along with other people's, at some point, your risk of burnout goes up. And you end up in a weaker position to be able to support other people. Yeah, that sense of self-worth is, is an important part of that equation. Huge. If you want to listen to the entire episode, this clip is from part two of our interview with them in April of 2020. This following clip is from our Super Connector Toolbox episode, where Johnny, Michael, and I are covering some points that we often are asked in our programs. This first clip is about avoiding a common mistake that could damage some of your standing, even though you're trying to add value. Now, I do want to make a caveat around introductions because we talked about relationships as part of your social capital. And many people think, oh, great. All I got to do is just start throwing everyone that I know at other people that I don't know. And now I'm making connections and, and I'm really helping myself. That's actually the wrong way to go about it. For many of the people that you're looking to connect with, they have their own mission that they're on. They have a lot on their plate. And a willy-nilly introduction of someone they don't know, even if you think that person could benefit them, out of the blue, puts a lot of pressure on them to not know what to say or do with this introduction. Or maybe they don't even get the context from you of what the introduction is about, and it falls flat, and it actually makes you look bad. So we prefer the double opt-in strategy. What a double opt-in means is you personally reach out to each person that you would like to introduce and you supply context to each of them. Hey, Michael, I'd love to introduce you to one of my favorite public speakers, Ted. Ted is talking, he's an expert in these three areas and he just great, gave a great TEDx talk on this. Would you be open to meeting him? Right? So that gives Michael an opportunity to one, say yes, I'm ready to meet someone, or to two, say, hey, you know, I'm really busy preparing for my upcoming talk. I don't really have time to grab coffee or lunch. Love to do it in the future. Thanks for thinking of me. Right? So you give Michael an opportunity to say yes or nay. Then you go to Ted and you go, hey, Ted, 
my best friend, Michael, he's an accomplished speaker. These are the three subjects he's speaking about on stage. And I saw you guys are going to the same event in three months. I'd love to throw an introduction your way. Would you be open to it? And now Ted can say, oh, you know what? I'm actually not going to be going to that event. I haven't let the uh, organizers know that I'm not going to be attending. And I just, I'm pretty slammed on this book that I'm writing, right? That double opt-in goes a long way to show that you value each person's time. You care about them. And you're not going to waste any of that valuable social capital that you have. What I find time and time again, and I get it, we're young, we're trying to, to show off that we have some connections, we're trying to help everyone. And we get this all the time. Hey, there's this guest that I want to introduce you to. I'm going to CC him. Hey, AJ, meet Tom. Okay, Tom, AJ, go do your thing. And I'm like, oh, I don't know who Tom is. I don't know what he talks about. Does he even know the podcast? And then all of a sudden, I'm on a call with Tom where neither of us know each other. And we can't actually work together. And now we both feel like our time was wasted and we're going to blame you for that sloppiness in your introduction. So the double opt-in is the best strategy to be respectful of either party. And when you get a firm yes, they remember that connection even more because you were so thoughtful in the way that you set it up. This next tip is about following up after meeting somebody new that you would like to have in your network. So let's talk about after the event. We gave you some great strategies to lead up to the event, some amazing strategies for how to approach all the people you want to meet at the event. Of course, we recommend you use the conversation formula. Let's talk about what to do after the event, because that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's where you start to solidify those connections you've made. Because I will tell you, I've gone to so many events where I come home with a pocket full of business cards of people that I'm excited to work with. And... I wasn't the best at taking great notes and I couldn't remember all those conversations and they just never followed up with me. And all those great ideas that we had, all that great momentum at the event just died day three, Sunday evening when everyone was flying home. So while the iron is hot, while things are top of mind, jot down your notes, you're remembering those memories of the event and all the connections you made and start the follow-up. So that as these people you met are landing back home, they're hopping on their LinkedIn, they're checking their Facebook, they're opening their email for the first time, you're there in their inbox offering that emotional support, giving that bit of knowledge or saying, hey, that was such a great conversation. I'd love to meet, introduce you to these two people. What do you say? That's going to set you so far ahead again in my experience. And I didn't do this myself early on in my career when I was trying to be a professional networker and I was really trying to grow my network and I missed out on so many opportunities because I just failed to follow up. And you have to realize that many of these events, they're double, triple stacked. Many of these speakers, they're, they're on a tour where they're speaking at a ton of events. So if you let days go by, if you let weeks go by and you think they're just gonna remember you because that conversation was so memorable for you, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot. So I would say I would not wait more than 24 hours after the end of the event to start the reach out and the follow up and making sure that you're adding everyone on the platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, because let's be honest, many of us don't all engage in all of those platforms. Some of our podcast guests that we've had on have told me straight up, I don't check LinkedIn, not a great place to connect with me. Some have said, hey, I'm only in my Instagram DMs. Others have said, I deleted Facebook. 
So you have to understand putting those tentacles out on every single platform, reaching out to them on every single platform, whatever platform they accept you on, then starting the messaging is the best strategy you can have to start following up and enriching these connections you've made at that event. First and foremost, like it's so important to reach out. Like I can't, it, I can't emphasize how important it is to maybe block out half a day after the event, even before you go to the event, because that's how long it must take to reach out to all of them and just let them know, hey, it was nice to meet you. Like my go-to follow-up would be, hey, it was so great to meet you at the conference. Happy to talk about X, Y, and Z, whatever it was. Um, wanted, wanted to have, wanted you to have my contact information as well. Have a good day, Michael. That's it. Um, and whenever I give you, AJ or Johnny, my, my business card, and I say, hey, that was a really good idea. Will you, like, will you get in touch with me? And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course, but I don't have any more business cards. Um, give me yours. I'll be in touch. And you don't? I will remember you guys. I will remember you at the next event that we had a really great idea that I can't remember anymore, that you had my business card and you didn't reach out. And the last, like my favorite way, and this probably doesn't work for everyone, but my favorite way of following up is that whenever I have a good connection with someone at an event, I take a selfie with them. Not the, oh, let's do a, like a duck face for Instagram or there, but more like, hey, let's, let's do a selfie so we can remember this. And then I ask the other person to do a silly face. I might be like, hey, let's, let's look like we're angry at each other. Let's, it's not the, the boring everyday fanboy selfie, but it's this... Let's pretend we're both bank robbers at this event here and we're going to, let's take a selfie together. And then we're laughing about the selfie and that's what I'm sending them the next day. It's like, by the way, here's the silly selfie we, we took together. Now they remember my face, they have my email address, they have my contact information and they, re, they share that, that funny moment that we had together as we we're like posing like bank robbers for, for a selfie. If you'd like to listen to the entire episode, these two clips were taken from our Toolbox episode of September 2022, entitled Unlock Your Inner Super Connector. And here's advice from Keith Ferrazzi on how to take an acquaintance in your network and bring that relationship to the next level. Now, Keith is someone we often refer to on our podcast. He's the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Never Eat Alone and Leading Without Authority. All right, now let's turn it over to Keith. We have studied this for some time, as you know, and we believe that there are eight attributes of a high-performing relationship. And some of those attributes of high-performing relationships are tough, like butt-kicking accountability. Somebody who tell you you're out of hand or who you got your head up your back end or whatever, right? That's an attribute. And in order to have that kind of accountability, you need psychological safety underneath. Give a damn, care. All of those things have to be underneath that. And we know that intimacy and empathy is critical. And what's the key that opens that up? It's vulnerability. Because I don't know that how many other people on this call have a, a struggle with a foster child or a son, but independent of that, you grew empathetic with me as I shared the one commonality I have with you, which is that I struggle, right? My vulnerability is our shared experience. And so your ability to, to put that out. So very simple at the beginning of a meeting, you do a quick uh, personal professional check-in, like we just did. At the beginning of a meeting, you make it shorter, call it sweet and sour. You get 15 seconds. What's going on in your life right now, sweet? What's going on in your life right now that's sour, right? I think many of us in a work environment, 
vulnerability, especially with those who are in a position of authority, is seen as weakness and could hold us back in our career. So how vulnerable is too vulnerable for those of us who see the hierarchy and see what it takes to get ahead, to get promoted, and especially in jobs and roles where performance reviews are all around results and then the way you interact with your team and their trust in you. And I want you to help us flip that on its head so we could see vulnerability as a strength because Johnny and I believe that, but that is certainly a question we get all the time. It's disproportionate to the level of respect that you've gained. Got to be proportionate to the level of respect you've gained. Nobody ever met me. You didn't know that I had New York Times, number one bestselling book, whatever, right? I walk into the room, it's like, and I start to cry and say, let me tell you how upset I am, whatever. That may be an imbalance, right? But if you're a hard worker and the people have, you know, a relational quality of on a scale of zero to five, the RQ score is three. You're a strong acquaintance. And by the way, you can get into the system that I use to think about relationships and RQ scores, et cetera. If you're a three, the only thing that's going to get you to a five is vulnerability and opening up. I could go one step further. I mean, I've been single for six years now, almost almost six, six years now. And I made a commitment after my last relationship that I would not get married again until I was in a co-elevating partnership, right? And, And I've been able to hold steady, right? But I have to say that the, you know, distractions and Tinder and all of these things, right? that are now available to us in the, in the dating world is very different. And also about how busy I am, et cetera. And I struggle and I worry. I'm 53, you know, I'm 53 years old. I want to have a, my life partner. And the formula to get there is, uh, is not always easy for me. You're like, where do you want to keep going? I'll go there. And, you know, and just ask yourself, what do you think when you hear that from me? I'm just, I'm speaking to your listeners. You know, what do you think when you hear that from me? Do you think pathetic? No, you don't. You think real. And I've learned this. The kid that wrote Never Eat Alone was more insecure than the man who's speaking to you now. I've grown in my capacity to give you my struggles and my vulnerability. And look, here's the thing. This is not something, AJ or Johnny, you're going to just tell your people, as you know. You don't think your way into a new way of acting. You act your way into a new way of thinking. So the reason they're here with you is you're giving them practice and you give them not just inspiration and motivation, you give them practice. So what I would say to all of you is pick a relationship in your life. That's an acquaintance today. Okay. An acquaintance, a a level three, you know, good, solid acquaintance. And I want you to reach out to them and say, Hey, I've always respected you. I was wondering if you just want to drop in on zoom sometime. And I'd love to share what I'm thinking about and up to and, you can share what you're thinking about and up to. And, you know, uh, let's see if there's any way we can, you know, help each other out. I just read this book, Leading Without Authority. And, you know, it talks about peer-to-peer relationships and co-elevation. You know, there might be some fun opportunity for us to be of service to each other. Now, you could find somebody at work you want to do that with. And so the intention is let's, let's find ways to make work better. You could just do it in life and call, you know, somebody you've met recently and think is awesome. You just want to get to know them better. Practice. And then when you're there, Open your heart a little bit more, be a little more vulnerable. You, what you're going to find is that it's well rewarded and then you'll take another step. So most people are afraid of taking that first step thinking they're going to fall off the cliff. That cliff is a mile away, damn it. One step is only going to give you courage to start running a half a mile, you know, and you're not going to get that close. You're too much of a coward. 
to step off the cliff. You won't do it. You'll be fine. You'll protect yourself, I promise. To listen to this full episode, check out our interview with him from July of 2020 entitled The Art of Strength and Vulnerability in Leadership. Johnny, we often get asked inside of our X-Factor Accelerator program how to level up your networking game so you can turn these loose ties, these acquaintances, into deep connections that can propel your career and your life forward. And it's so fun to break down not only our tips, but share some of the best tips we've heard on the show over the last decade. I got to agree. And networking is so much fun. And it doesn't have to be a pain in the ass. It should be something that comes easy to you, that you enjoy doing, and that will open new doors of opportunity for you. And that's exactly what Ben did inside our X Factor Accelerator program. Before joining the Art of Charm X Factor Accelerator program, I felt stuck in my personal and professional life. I've been married for 10 years and was ready to start dating again but I had no idea how to approach it. Dating apps were a waste of time, and I knew I needed to build a network to create more options for myself in both dating and business. That's when I discovered the Art of Charm X Factor Accelerator program, and it changed my life. The program provided me with the tools and resources I needed to meet new people, build lasting connections, and expand my social circle. I learned how to confidently approach new people, start meaningful conversations, and leave lasting impressions. Thanks to the Art of Charm, I've been able to grow my network and meet incredible people who've opened up new doors for me, both in my personal and professional life. I can confidently say that joining the X-Factor Accelerator program was the best decision I ever made. Are you ready to revolutionize your dating game, enrich your social life, and expand your professional network? The Art of Charm X-Factor Accelerator is here to kickstart your transformation. Master captivating communication, build deep connections, and develop an unshakable confidence that resonates in every aspect of your life. Under the guidance of seasoned coaches, including AJ and myself, you'll not only navigate the dating world with new foundies, but you'll also become a magnet in social settings and a linchpin in professional circles. Stop living an ordinary life and begin your transformation today. Visit unlockyourxfactor.com and apply for the Art of Charm X Factor Accelerator. All right. Before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Until next week, go out there and crush it.